Hey, good morning. If you got your Bible ready, why don't you go ahead and open it with me to Acts chapter 11. Last time we were together in Acts, we were uh, watching how the Holy Spirit opened the door to the Gentiles ultimately being saved. We had seen individual examples of that previously, but now the door was opening up. Cornelius and his household got saved, and uh, the Holy Spirit fell upon them in the same way that they had those very first believers in Jerusalem. And so Peter was used by God dramatically in that circumstance, uh, ultimately to be the vehicle through which he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And in chapter 11, we begin to see some of the response to that on the part of those Uh, especially the part of those Messianic Jews who had come to believe in Christ, but were a little tentative at the idea that the gospel was now opening up outside of the Jews, Uh, and in such a way uh, that they didn't have to really come through Moses to come to Christ. And this was kind of an issue that was going to require them really hashing this out, and that ultimately becomes the basis of, um, or becomes really the Uh, point of contention and discussion that takes place in the very first council held by the church that we'll get to when we get to Acts chapter 15. But in chapter 11, we begin to see things ramping up toward that a little bit as they begin to try and sort this out a little bit. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in seeing how the first century church kind of had to deal with how God worked in ways they weren't used to. Now, I, I should probably point out that This was a new thing that the Holy Spirit was doing. However, it wasn't some unbiblical, uncharacteristic of God kind of a thing. It was just the next thing that God was doing. However, it was something that previously in Scripture, through the words of Christ himself, uh, even as a matter of fact in the prophet Joel that Peter quotes from on the day of Pentecost when he shares that first sermon, He says, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So something was happening here that they weren't ready for, but it wasn't something that God hadn't spoken to. Now I make that point because it's very important when we get into this area of God doing a new thing. We hear that kind of thing nowadays in the church where people say, oh, God is bigger than his word, and he's doing a new thing. There's new wine being poured out, and you don't want to be an old wineskin and all this kind of thing. Now, those are biblical concepts, the idea of not being an old wineskin. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being old wineskins. God was doing a work here that, in one sense, it was new in that he hadn't done it yet, but it wasn't something that he hadn't spoken of before. And so, when we hear things like, for example, I was just kind of flippantly quoted the expression that is sometimes bandied around, that God is bigger than his word. That sounds really spiritual, but it's actually a terribly unbiblical concept. Um, God does those things that he has revealed to the prophets, even as it says in the scripture. He does not contradict himself and all of a sudden change, uh, you know, ultimately, foundationally, what he's doing. If there's something that God is doing today, we should be able to find a biblical precedent for it. If not, we are on, if we're not on completely wrong ground, we're at least ought to stop and have a red flag and say, are we at least on shaky ground here? Um, Typically speaking, uh, without getting too much on a tangent on this, when people say that God is doing some new thing, oftentimes it doesn't take a lot of looking into it to see that it actually is sort of an unbiblical thing that they're 
participating in. It isn't that God is doing it. It's just that somehow it feels good or it seems God-like-ish or something. And it's the Holy Spirit because, you know, actually there's an expression that we sometimes use and I get it. I I may have even used it myself at some point. Um, But there's an expression that, you know, if you can explain it, then God didn't do it. Okay, well, then the opposite of that is that if you can't explain it, it must be God, you know? Maybe it doesn't totally logically have to follow that way, but it kind of does follow that way. Um, That sounds kind of exciting and, you know, Holy Spirit kind of a thing, but that's not, strictly speaking, a very biblical thing. Um, You know, in the Old Testament, I'll, I'll, uh, the exact reference escapes me at the moment, but I'll find it and put it in the notes there. Is I, I try to always make sure that you can kind of look up the cross-references and stuff. Um, but, you know, there's a passage, and um, I don't know why I'm thinking it's Hosea, but I'm, I'm thinking it's a different passage, actually, where it says that God only does those things that he's revealed to the prophets. Now, there's a context in which he says that, but there's a principle there that I think should, at the very least, lay a foundation for our willingness to accept something being done actually being of the Lord. I think there's a wisdom in making sure that we search the scriptures to see whether these things that are happening or are being done are really of the Lord. Hey, let me flip on my little announcement stopper here so that we can not be interrupted here. But, um, sorry about that. But uh, I had a thing pop up and I don't want to have the phone all of a sudden ring while we're doing this. So, um, so we want to look to the scripture as the basis for our understanding on what God is or is not doing. Uh, Paul, for example, when it comes to things like prophecy, he says, test the prophets as he's teaching the Corinthians about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let two or three speak, let the others judge. You know, John in his first epistle says, you know, test the spirits to see whether or not they're of God. Um, Paul in warning Timothy says that, you know, in the latter days, people are going to give in to the doctrines of demons and all these kinds of things. And so we want to make sure that we're safeguarding against falling prey to that kind of stuff. Okay. Now, all that was a long preamble that that really is probably worthwhile to spend a minute on. But, um, and, and it does, it kind of helps lay a foundation a little bit for sort of how they begin to deal with how things are now unfolding uh, under the leading of the Holy Spirit as the church moves from being predominantly a Jewish-based uh group of believers to all of a sudden now, as Paul would describe in Ephesians 2.14, suddenly the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile is disappearing, and one body is now being created between Jew and Gentile, and that is what the church is. So in chapter 11, verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers uh, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Actually, let me stop before we go further into there and just kind of explain this beginning part. Uh, Those of the circumcision party. There was a group of people uh, within the church at that time, which, and we should grant a certain amount of grace and understanding on this. Um, There were those that we're holding on to the idea, and in some ways, it's not hard to see why, because this was very, this was a new extension now of what the church was about. But the circumcision party are those that believed that if you were going to come to the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, 
then you needed to still come, as we mentioned earlier, kind of through Moses or through the law. There would need to be circumcision and there would need to be these things. Now, why would they think that? Well, uh, when you read through passages like Isaiah 55, 56, and 57, we see that God has a heart for the Gentiles and he calls them to come and to sort of tie themselves to the Lord. But uh, the the idea is that if they're circumcised and they honor the Sabbath, then they can be part of the commonwealth of Israel. Even if they are not ethnically Jewish, they can sort of join in uh, among the followers of the true God. And so that's part of the basis of where these people are, where these guys are coming from here now in the book of Acts. They are thinking, well, okay, well, God reached out to Gentiles before, but they had to do it this way. But you went in and ate with Gentiles that hadn't done this. They hadn't been circumcised. They weren't necessarily honoring the Sabbath. We know that Cornelius and his family, they prayed to the true God. They gave alms. They were, you know, they, they, they followed the Lord, though they weren't technically, strictly speaking, mentioned as being proselytes. So we don't gather from that that they necessarily were honoring the Sabbath or that they had been circumcised. And the implication from the complaint against uh, what happened here by those um, uh, the circumcision party or Judaizers is probably uh, just as fair a term to say here, this group that would follow Paul around and try and undermine his gospel of grace later on. Um, their resistance to this is probably rooted in the fact that this idea of, well, this is how Gentiles come, not the way you just did it. And so because that's true, Peter explains to them what happened. And as we mentioned last time in Acts chapter 10, that it's a good thing that Peter had a couple of witnesses come with. There were people that came with him over to Joppa, ultimately, uh, or to Cornelius' house from Joppa, um, and, uh, and they witnessed what happened. And so they could validate and verify what Peter is now explaining to them. Uh, what is he explaining to them? Let's jump back into the passage here. Um, in verse 4. So Peter began again and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, letting down, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house at which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Now, of course, this should all sound very familiar, because we um, had just you know, um, read this in Acts chapter 10. And so, um, uh, uh, and so there we were. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household." As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if then God gave the same, uh, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so this now becomes this wonderful um, 
Is that still recording? I think it is. Okay. This becomes this wonderful um, uh, new thing that the Lord did. Again, he referenced it throughout at various points in the Old Testament to the prophets, but now it's happening. And Peter shared how it came to be that he was willing to go and to go to Cornelius's house. He didn't feel comfortable doing it, but he recognized, okay, if God is in this, I don't want to stop what God is doing. Uh, and so the evidence of God having done this is that the Holy Spirit wonderfully led this family to be born again. And so they naturally, these, these, uh, these Jewish, Messianic Jewish believers now that Peter was talking to, they all began to rejoice. God was doing something not just exciting in some light way, but something dramatic. The gospel was now going out into the whole world. You remember how Jesus in the Great Commission said, go out into all the world and make disciples. Into all the world and make disciples. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I have, told, have, have taught you and told you. And so there is this wonderful moving of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, uh, even ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is now happening in their day. And they are tentative and they're figuring it out as they go, but they are careful to scrutinize and make sure this is actually the Lord. Uh, a feature that is unfortunately, as we kind of already said earlier, in, in uh, kind of alluded to, I guess, earlier, a feature that is kind of absent from much of the body of Christ, this idea of scrutinizing and testing whether or not this is actually God at work. Well, the church grew strong and the church grew daily as God added uh, to the number of those such as should be saved. And the church, uh, as we've seen on a couple of very dramatic occasions previously with Ananias and Sapphira, the church was pure, and it it practiced. Uh, well, it was just, it was just a, a it was purified, and the Holy Spirit was moving. There there's something to be uh, not envious. That's the wrong word, but there's something to be longed for in what we see happening in the first century, a desire to see God moving in such a way as to break down various kinds of barriers that people might come to faith. And that as the church, we might legitimately pour ourselves into what God is doing to test, to make sure whether God is the one doing it. And it's not some other kind of maybe self-driven or even demonically driven thing. What is God doing? Now, having said that, the beauty of the gospel is that it does reach people outside of maybe our group, our comfort level. Um, sometimes in the body of Christ, there is this sense that if somebody gets saved, it's going to look just like it did when I got saved. Uh, one of the great examples of this, actually, uh, in my own reading, um, was uh, Elizabeth Elliot. Um, uh, if you're familiar with Jim Elliot and Steve Saint and the Auka Five, the guys that went and um, uh, ultimately brought the gospel to this sort of remote, removed uh, indigenous tribe, uh, kind of a circumstance. Well, uh, uh, the Alka Five, the husbands, the men, they were killed by this group eventually. Well, Elizabeth Elliot uh, and, and the women kind of went back, but Elizabeth Elliot stayed there and went back and began to um, try to learn how to minister to this group. It's really dramatic, but this group that had killed her husband and these other men. 
Well, the questions that she began to ask were, well, what will it look like when I, as a Westerner, bring the gospel to this tribe that has no idea of what the gospel looks like in my culture? Will it look the same in their culture? And she had to wrestle with some of those questions and what that would look like. And because she did wrestle with them, she became a very effective minister to them. Now, she didn't compromise the gospel or anything, but it just, it didn't look Western. And, and I'll, I'll leave it to you to look some of that up on your own in that. But it's, uh, it's fascinating just to stop and think for a moment what it looks like when we bring the gospel to people that don't look like us, that don't act like us, that don't come from the same background that we have. We ought to recognize whether or not God's actually the one working. Is, is the gospel biblical truth being shared? And is the response to it, in fact, uh, a response to the legitimate gospel? Is the Holy Spirit now demonstrating uh, that he's at work in the lives of the folks that have received it? That was the model in the New Testament. Um, and, and that's what we're seeking. We want to see God working in this day, in these last days. Um, and especially, you know, I, I know uh, sometimes we bring up the fact that the, the New Testament doesn't talk about a revival before Jesus returns. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be praying for one. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask him to do a great work in our day, much like he did in the first century. And if he does, we want to be open to what he is doing. We want to know that it is him doing it. And again, we go to the scriptures to, to make sure that this isn't something else. But if the Holy Spirit is legitimately moving in those around us because we're simply sharing the gospel and all of a sudden, we see that happen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, our faith is not simply something that ends at the academic level. There is an academic approach. We want to understand what the Word of God says. But the Word of God speaks of God working. And so we want to see that in our day. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. We should be biblically scrutinous about it, if I can invent a word for a moment. But we should bring all things in the light of the scripture to see whether it's legit. But so long as it is, we should be thankful and ask God what else we can do to participate in that, to help people come to faith, grow in their faith, live out their faith, all these kinds of things. Um, let's just pray and hope that God will do something like this in our day. Let's pray for it now. Heavenly Father, we're just sitting here, considering these things from your word, considering what you did uh, through the Holy Spirit there in the first century as the gospel of Christ was brought. <clears throat> Father, we would pray and even plead that you would do that in our day, not so that we can just sort of be excited about it, but because we want to see people saved. It's for your glory that we're ultimately asking this. And should you work again in a way like this, should the Holy Spirit move in such a way that he draws people to Christ, even though it may seem like people that aren't like us are the ones coming to Christ. Help us not to stand in the way of that. Help us, like Peter, to say, who am I to get in the way of what you're doing? Father, we pray that you'd help us to be students of Scripture so that we're not misled and, 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 and substituting something false for what is true. But if you're truly at work, help us not to be on the side of those that resist on the side of those that enlist ourselves in that which you're doing. Father, we know the days are growing darker and shorter. And so, Father, we just pray that you would work again before Jesus returns in our day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, as always, if you have comments or questions, please feel free to leave them in the comments section on uh, here on YouTube, or if you want to go to my website at parsonspad.com, you can do that there as well. And uh, thanks for watching. And, uh, and you can also go to our church's website at Calvary Chapel Franklin to find out more about us and also to watch our Sunday morning services. And you can email me from there as well. But God bless you. Thanks for watching. And we, uh, I hope you do turn in, tune in again as we continue to make our way through the Word of God, both in the book of Acts and the various topics that we cover uh, that are all intended to ultimately build into our discipleship as we seek to walk with the Lord and learn how to do that more and more each day. So, but God bless you. Thanks for watching, and we'll catch up with you next time.